Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, a formal announcement could come as early as today on a ban on assault-style weapons. We have long been committed to strengthening gun control in this country, including uh, banning military-style assault weapons. There is no need in Canada for guns designed to kill the largest amount of people in the shortest amount of time. Doug Ford tells businesses in Ontario to start getting ready to reopen. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, and I am laser-focused right now on opening things up as quickly as we can in a safe and measured way. We will open things up in phases as it becomes safe to do so, based on health and science. And the Conservative Party leadership race resumes. The mail-in ballots won't be counted until August 21st, but the membership cutoff remains the same. So that's going to be May 15th. It's Friday, May the 1st. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by HuffPost Canada's Ottawa Bureau Chief and the host of the follow-up podcast, Althea Raj. Althea, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Mark. We're hearing that the federal government, in the aftermath of the deadliest shooting in Canadian history uh, 10 days ago or a little bit longer in Nova Scotia, uh, is going to ban a number of assault-style firearms and weapons, including the type of weapon that was used during the 1989 Ecole Polytechnique massacre. What are you hearing about this? Yeah, so this is actually something that the Liberals campaigned on during the last election, and it was something that was um, maybe a week or two from being um, announced. Uh, I think that uh, the Liberals and Bill Blair specifically had been working on this for a while, and they expected to release the plan earlier and then maybe they had a few kinks to work out, and um, they never really got around to it before uh, Parliament was put on pause because of the COVID pandemic. So it's not like they ha- are having to uh, start from scratch, or that they're being uh, that they're starts coming out with a policy to respond to the horrible shootings in Nova Scotia. But this gives them an ability to perhaps sell something that may have been uh, less tangible to Canadians, especially in rural areas, uh, in a way that might be more tangible. Like we saw, for example, in New Zealand, uh, when the government there came out with uh, a ban on all military-style semi-automatic weapons after um, that shooter uh, killed more than 50 people. Yeah, and it seems as though in, in this ongoing battle over which guns are legal in Canada and in other jurisdictions and which are not, that there is, there's a pattern that when there is a shooting, that's when proponents of gun control seize the opportunity to put new measures in place. And, and uh, it feels like sometimes that's what it takes. You need to kind of capitalize on the moment to, to bring new measures into place. Yeah, I would say that it's not something that, you know, uh, is not being lobbied during regular times. Yeah. It's just that sometimes you need the public's buy-in to get something done, and the media attention is suddenly shining a light on this one issue, and policymakers are more likely to take a risk than they would otherwise fearing a backlash from the gun lobby industry. Um, and so they're... I mean, we see that in the United States rather unsuccessfully, though. I mean, they're successful at getting media attention, but not so successful at at getting policy change. Um, I think, you know, this is 
what Bill Blair proposed to caucus before the election campaign was kind of a middle of the road road um, uh, concession to some parts of the Liberal caucus who were very worried that the policy would not be um, sellable in their local ridings. And that's why we had things like, we're going to leave it to the cities to implement uh, handgun bans if that's what they want to do. We're not going to come out with a national policy. We're going to leave it to jurisdictions locally to determine this, which of course begs the question, well then won't you have like Swiss cheese across the country where like in some jurisdictions you can have certain weapons and in other jurisdictions you can't. Um, The policy with regards to the assault style weapons, which isn't a legal definition, and it will be interesting to see whether or not the government decides to ban certain weapons in the way that they have now, or if they make uh, a broader categorization so that um, often what we've seen uh, firearm manufacturers is they just kind of tinker with the with the firearms. And so the, the new versions are legal, but the old versions were not. So we'll see um, how the legislation right. is drafted. But the buyback program is something that um, has also been criticized. So uh, on the left and on the right um, for being extremely expensive, perhaps unnecessary. Uh, so we will see it. I, in all likelihood, this is not going to be the perfect Goldilocks piece of legislation. It will be criticized mm-hmm. by proponents of legislation, and it will be criticized, obviously, by those who don't want to see any, any type of ban at all. All right. Let's turn to the coronavirus crisis and the fact that we're seeing uh, not just Quebec now moving forward with taking steps to reopen the economy, but Ontario hinting that there's there are moves that are just around the corner. Doug Ford yesterday, the Premier of Ontario, saying businesses should start getting ready to reopen and laying out some of the conditions for them to reopen. Uh, So we don't have a timetable on this yet, but there is some light at the end of the tunnel, and we're seeing provincial leaders talk about actually moving in that direction. Yeah, that's actually the term he used, the light at the end of the tunnel on Thursday. Um, So he and the Ontario government had come out uh, with their multi-phased plan, um, earlier in the week, actually. And on Thursday, they released sector-specific um, guidelines. So, uh, you know, what needs to be done in the construction industry, for example. And the Labour Minister announced that there's going to be more inspectors hired in order to do these checks. Um, so Ontario is adding more flesh to its bones, but it's not being as specific as um, Quebec, for example, which has said... Uh, you know, daycares will be open on Monday outside of Montreal, and we have a, and two weeks after that, we'll see what happens. And then there's a, a, a more tangible version of the plan in Quebec, and we will see if that um, if that works. From Mirla Go on Thursday was very clear with people to say, listen, we're going at this very slowly, and if um, if the benchmarks are not there, and if there are, if there's a spike in cases then we're going to hit pause, and we may even be willing to go backwards. We saw Alberta on Thursday, Jason Kenney, the premier there, come out with a government's um, three-phased approach um, at uh, reopening the economy. So uh, it's um, it's not a uniform picture across the country. The federal government has released guidelines earlier this week about what um, it hopes the provinces will accomplish in order to reopen uh their local economies. So, for example, ensuring that there are plans to take care of vulnerable populations, that there is uh, capacity in the hospitals to deal with surge, um, sur- a surge in cases. But 
um, it's clear that some provinces perhaps have less risk tolerance than others. And so we will have a patchwork approach as early as next Monday. All right, let's turn to the conservative leadership race, which is back on. And there was news yesterday that Peter McKay is way out in front in terms of fundraising. Uh, Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to see what kind of campaigns the leadership candidates run in the weeks ahead, because they won't be traditional. They won't be traveling the country, holding rallies and other in-person events, of course. Well, at least not for the next several weeks or likely few months. Um, so Peter McKay is number one in terms of fundraising, uh, in terms of the money raised. But Aaron O'Toole uh, was trumpeting on Twitter last night that he has raised uh, money by the most number of individual donors so that he has beat Peter McKay's 4,700 donors, beat Peter McKay's 3,500 donors, so that he has more grassroots support. And that should be a benchmark the media uses. Um What's uh, pretty impressive is actually that all these candidates, um, Derek Sloan, Leslie Lewis, they've, those two have raised more than 400000 um each. Aaron O'Toole raised over 780000 and Peter McKay has gone over the $1 million mark. It doesn't really matter that much because, as you said, they won't be spending that much money. Um, so the party announced late Wednesday evening that the race is back on. Basically, it had told candidates that uh, it didn't want them fundraising, didn't want them bugging uh, party members, that if they sold uh, memberships, they would not be processed. And now that is being listed. One thing that wasn't listed that I think is really important to note is that the membership deadline remains the same. So interestingly enough, you know, we were supposed to have this contest with a big announcement on June 27th in Toronto. Now, um, the mail-in ballots won't be counted until August 21st, but the membership cutoff remains the same. So that's going to be May 15th, so uh, the the date that had been announced uh, back in March. So the parties only have two weeks to try to sell as many memberships as they possibly can. And right. then you won't be able to participate in the conservative leadership race if you decide that you like something that you see from Aaron O'Toole or Peter McKay or Derek Sloan, for example, in late May. Well, too bad for you. You can't vote in this contest, which is very interesting and puzzling, um, especially considering that we haven't even had one leadership debate yet. The candidates have not had a chance to debate each other. We don't really know what they stand for, what their policy differences are. Um, and, you know, there hasn't been obviously that much attention because of the pandemic. And the contest is really just beginning to get underway um, when uh, this global pandemic was announced in the second week of March. Right. So, um, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to watch. But this is definitely not going to be the same contest that we had in 2017, no. where we had so many candidates crowding the stages and debates almost every week um, and <laughs> yeah. the candidates and the new separate headlines continuously because yes it's going to be hard to campaign it's going to be email blasts and zoom conference calls and teleconference calls um, and there it's going to be hard to get media attention mm. all right we will see what happens it's about to get interesting althea thank you for joining yeah. us today have a great weekend thank you very much you too mark Stay safe. That's Althea Raj, HuffPost Canada's Ottawa Bureau Chief and the host of the follow-up podcast. To date, labs across Canada have tested over 800,000 people for COVID-19, with about 7% of these testing positive. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. 
In an editorial, the Toronto Star argues reopening requires a lot more testing, but we're still falling short. The Star writes, Nearly seven weeks after Canada started restricting the movement and activities of its citizens, we still haven't managed to push testing into high gear. And we don't know how the virus is still being transmitted in the community. If officials don't know where the risk points are now, how can they possibly hope to prepare to minimize the risks when the economy opens up? Right now, testing is the only tool we have to fight the pandemic, and we're not doing nearly enough. In the Globe and Mail, Robin Urbach argues Canadians have been gaslit on China. Urbach writes, There is reason for the government to tread carefully in its comments on China at the moment. We've seen the effect that retaliatory measures from Beijing can have. But treading carefully is not the same as Canada's health minister effectively trying to gaslight citizens about the conduct of a habitually untruthful regime. We know Beijing tried to cover up the outbreak. We know its numbers are incorrect. We can't expect Beijing to tell us the truth, but we should expect that of our own government. At National News Watch, Dennis Sarov argues government's responses to COVID-19 and terrorism should be similar. Sarov writes, Both are very out-of-ordinary phenomena whose development, death toll, and future occurrence cannot be easily predicted. If we understand the threat of terrorism and understand the measures aimed at preventing it, such as airport security screening or programs aimed at fighting radicalization and uncovering terrorist networks, we should also understand the threat of a new virus that is also deadly, unpredictable, and requires equally serious measures to prevent it claiming more lives. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Senate will hold a special sitting today to receive, debate, and pass the government's student economic aid legislation. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more. Mark, the Senate will start sitting at noon Eastern time, and they'll immediately form a committee of the whole and hear from the sponsor of the government's $9 billion student aid package and legislation, Employment Minister Carla Qualtro. The senators will get a chance to grill her for up to two hours. Then they'll immediately proceed to second and third readings, and it's expected that they will pass this money bill with no amendments. Then it will be off to the Governor-General for royal assent. The biggest measure in the $9 billion package is a new Canada Emergency Student Benefit, which will pay students up to $1,250 a month for up to four months for those who cannot find employment because of the COVID-19 downturn. And for students who have dependents or disabilities, they will receive $2,000, the same amount as Canadians receiving the CERB, the other major government benefit for the COVID unemployed. Now that $2,000 amount in the student benefit was increased and that was one of the conditions for the support of the NDP and for the government to be able to pass the legislation in the House of Commons. The Conservatives also requested and obtained some assurances in the legislation that students would have to attest to having attempted to find some employment through the government's job banks. Mark, after the Senate has finished today, it will adjourn until June the 2nd. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister is expected to hold his daily news conference on the coronavirus crisis, and Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet will continue his virtual tour of Quebec to discuss regional issues and economic recovery in response to COVID-19. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Friday, May the 1st. Tune in to CPAC and CPAC.ca throughout the day and weekend for coverage of the coronavirus crisis. Our podcast returns Monday morning. Have a great weekend.